Thank you so much, Dave. And uh, yeah, I pray that the word is, is, is encouraging today. I want you to open up your Bibles, if you've got them with you, um, to Daniel chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there might be one in the seat in front of you. Uh, so please do open up your Bibles there. We are continuing our study through the book of Daniel, considering the life and times of the prophet Daniel. This is a book that we really feel as a church has a prophetic meaning for us in this day, that it's an encouragement to us as Christians in the 21st century. Though this, was, this book was written 2,600 years ago, it speaks to us with clarity even here in 2022. So let us read together from the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which of the three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed.' 
As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped all that was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, that seemed greater than its companions." As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from all the former ones, and shall put down three kings, and shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time." But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Thanks be to God for his word today. Lord, we pray we'd be nourished by it. Father, we pray that no matter what we might cover today, however sobering, however strange it might be, we know that your Holy Spirit preserved for us this word for our encouragement and for our upbuilding. So we pray, Lord God, open hearts right now, open minds, help us comprehend your word to us today and be built up by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The word I have for you today, brothers and sisters, is both sobering but greatly encouraging. It's sobering because we're drawn by the text today to consider what will transpire here on earth in the last days. It's encouraging, on the other hand, because we're going to see again today from the book of Daniel that the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. That God is sovereign over every event that happens. He is sovereign over both heaven and earth. He is even sovereign over the devil himself. And this is the message, the great theme of the book of Daniel. I don't know if you've picked up on it yet, but the theme is that God reigns. The heavens reign. Among other things of note in this passage, and there are many of them, I'm having to split this message over two Sundays because there's so much to cover. 
Um, there are two characters who stick out to us in Daniel chapter 7. Firstly, there is this character here named as the little horn. The little horn, who we're told speaks great things against the Most High, and he shall be said to wear out the saints of the Most High. That's the first character who we will be considering in our exposition of this chapter. Secondly, the other character is called the Son of Man. And this Son of Man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And it says that all peoples, I want you to hear that, all peoples, all nations, and all languages will serve Him. That's this character, this individual called the Son of Man. Now, my aim today and the next time that I bring this chapter before you is that I want to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the identity of both of these characters is firstly that the little horn, this shadowy figure, this strange figure that we are referred to here by as the little horn, is in fact none other than the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist, okay? The, I want to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt today. Secondly, I also want to prove to you that this character known as the Son of Man is none other than our very own Lord Jesus Christ. This is talking about Jesus. And today, our focus will be on unveiling the identity of this character known here as the Little Horn. So my message title for you today is this, The Rise and Fall of the Little Horn. I want your hearts to be open. I want your minds to be switched on. You've probably never sat in a church service where there has been a message on the Antichrist. Well, you're about to hear one. Now, there are often raised eyebrows in churches when a pastor chooses to teach on matters like this. Why are we covering something so dark? Why talk about something so negative? Can't we stick to the promises of God? We could stick to the love of God. We can just stay our course on the gospel, which is all well and good. Why do we need to hear about the Antichrist? Isn't that just a bit negative? Pastor, keep it positive. Keep it positive. Now, I believe that line of thinking, though it, it sounds like wisdom, I believe that type of thinking is, to be honest, one of the root causes of why we see such a malaise, such a weakness in the Western church today. Christians have been fed selectively from the Scriptures. Pastors for generations have fed their church only what they deem to be positive, uplifting, something that will cause the church to walk out of the doors with their heads held high, feeling, I'm a good person, I feel good. <laughs> And that might sound very well-meaning. However, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of Scripture, is He not? Though the Bible was written, yes, by men, many men, individuals, kings and fishermen, its ultimate author is none other than God Himself. And God, the Holy Spirit, has already ordained through the Scriptures what your diet should be as a Christian. I hope that makes sense to you. If you're a Christian, then that means what? It means you are in relationship to God as a son, as a daughter, that God is your father. 
Now, I, I like to think of this because I'm a father too. And although I don't often cook, sometimes I do, but it's my choice as a father what I put on the dinner table for my children. And it wouldn't be a good idea if I fed my kids constantly on candy floss, would it? It wouldn't be good for their teeth. It wouldn't be good for their bellies. They might enjoy it. My eldest is sat there. She might love it, but it wouldn't do much good for her health. <laughs> She's nodding. It wouldn't, I promise you. We'd be in the dentist every other week. And God is your Father, and He has prescribed a healthy diet for you in the Holy Scriptures. And so when you question me, Graham, why on earth are you teaching on the Antichrist in a church? I will respond to you because God has asked me to do so. God has already prescribed that I ought to teach the whole counsel of God. Not my selection, not my greatest hits, not my vision, not my revelation, but the whole counsel of God. Amen? Can you say amen to that? That's why we teach on these things from the pulpit in Hope City Church. We teach this stuff because the Holy Spirit has preserved it for us. That means He must know there is some benefit to us hearing about it. Secondly, I want to encourage you that this is, is a thing that is biblical and is properly Christian to do, talking about matters like this, because for centuries the church has taught on the person of the little horn, the Antichrist. The apostles talked about it. Paul spoke to the Thessalonians about it in 2 Thessalonians. John, the apostle, spoke constantly in his first epistle about Antichrist. Goodness me, how negative, John. Didn't you read um, the pastor's books of the 21st century? Your best life now. You could have made a killing, right? John consistently talked about the Antichrist. Again, in the revelation that John received on the Isle of Patmos, we see more about the Antichrist. Again, the, the church fathers, those who came immediately after the apostles, they too warned churches about the coming of the end times and particularly about this character named the Antichrist. Irenaeus spoke about it, Cyril of Jerusalem, uh, we could go on and talk about the Reformers and the Puritans. They, too, spoke to their congregations about this sort of stuff. They believed back then in the first and the second and third centuries. They were in the last days. They believed Jesus could come any day. And so how much more must we in 2022 be warned about what is coming? should also be mentioned um, that what we're studying here today, what you're hearing from the Scriptures, is prophetic revelation. It's prophetic. So it's a bit different to when we study the Gospel of Mark together. It's a different genre. Scripture is made up, of, as you know, of 66 different books. And there are many different genres in the Bible. And we need to employ slightly different means of understanding them, depending on what genre we're looking at. You'll know this because you will employ a different method of interpretation, whether you're reading a newspaper or whether you're reading a novel. And the same is true of Scripture. We're looking at prophetic revelation. This is prophetic revelation that Daniel dreamed, that God sent to Daniel two and a half thousand years ago. There is a bit of a warning flag when we do study prophetic scripture that I do want to make you aware of. 
it can be very tempting when we're studying a book like Daniel or Revelation to run away with ourselves. It can be very tempting to run off into all kinds of wild speculations. And there are many teachers who have done just that, who've got carried away with fanciful ideas and interpretations. And it's very easy to do. They, they begin to read into passages what they would like to see. We have to resist, brothers and sisters, this temptation. Though it is tempting to do so, to try and draw lines between dots that we think we're seeing. We must try to do the best we can to interpret this scripture rightfully. What I'm going to teach you today on this passage is an interpretation that I believe has stood the test of time. I'm not teaching you anything new today. I'm not going to be teaching you anything that hasn't been taught throughout the millennia of church history. And it's been taught by men of far greater expertise and learning than I. So I think I'm in safe hands when I teach what I'm about to. So let's begin looking at this chapter together. The chapter we're considering today, chapter 7, I don't know if you've realized, but it bears an uncanny resemblance to Daniel chapter 2. I don't know if you remember me saying, but chapters 2 through 7 of the book of Daniel, there is a symmetry to them. There's a symmetry to them. The chapters come in pairs. Daniel chapter 2 is paired with 7. Chapter 3 is paired with 6. Chapter 4 is paired with 5. It's like a symmetrical book. It's incredible. So we will see many similarities between this passage today and Daniel chapter 2, which was Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the statue. Do you remember? And the statue had four different types of metal in it and represented four earthly kingdoms. We're going to see a lot of parallels today. Both dreams, as I say, speak of future earthly kingdoms that will rule on earth. Both dreams speak of the final victory of the kingdom of heaven over the kingdoms of earth. And both dreams have left the respective dreamer unsettled. Have you ever had a revelation from God that left you feeling unsettled? Have you ever opened your Bible and read something and felt unsettled? Then you're in good company. Hallelujah. If all you ever feel when you open your Bible is uplifted and encouraged, I don't know what Bible you're reading. Very often when I open mine, I feel deeply challenged. I feel unsettled sometimes. I feel inadequate. I know I need grace. And Daniel felt unsettled after this dream. Nebuchadnezzar, he slept his sleep, rather, went from him in chapter 2. I want to just point out the history uh, that's going on as well here because Daniel chapter 2 is actually around 50 years removed from Daniel chapter 7. Um, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream as a youth. We, we hear that it's in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Daniel dreams his dream, the one we're reading about here in chapter 7, in the first year of Belshazzar's reign, which is actually nearly 50 years later. This dream happened actually before the events of chapter 6. It happened before the lion's den. It happened before the fall of Babylon that we talked about last time around. It happened before the Medes and the Persians came and King Darius began to rule in Babylon. So let's look at the dream itself, shall we? Let's try and pick apart what's happening here. I believe the dream can be broken down into three scenes, if you will. Three scenes. The first scene, 
Daniel sees a great sea. He sees a great sea and he sees the four winds of heaven, as he puts it, stirring up the great sea and he sees these four beasts, frightening, each unique, coming up out of the sea. In the second scene, Daniel then looks into heaven and he sees this character known as the Ancient of Days who sat on a fiery throne and there's fire all around and there's a stream of fire coming out from the front. And there's one like a son of man who comes and receives a kingdom. Now in the third scene, he speaks to an angel, a bystander, who interprets what he's already seen for him. Now Daniel at this point says he remains silent. He writes the dream down and keeps it to himself at first. So let's look at this first scene and what's happening. We see in the first scene, primarily we see, first off we see rather, four winds from heaven and they're stirring up the waters of this great sea. It might seem an insignificant detail in the grand scheme of things, but let's look at this and let's consider what it means. Firstly, What was the cause of the stirring upon the great sea? What caused it? Was it activity from beneath? An earthquake? Ships stirring up the waters? No, the four winds of heaven stirred up the waters of the great sea. So what does this tell us? It tells us that the beginning of all these events is actually the activity of heaven upon the earth. This is heaven stirring up the events of earth. And what do we learn from this? It shows us again that God is the ultimate cause of all things, that heaven rules. (laughs) Amen. Heaven rules over earth. He is sovereign over world affairs. He's not surprised by the arisal of these four beasts. He's not left thinking, goodness me, where did this come from? Look at the state of that beast. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do about this? And I do think so many of us as Christians have this idea of God that he's reactive, that he's up there thinking, man, I didn't expect them to do this. And we know there are, pa- there are passages in Scripture in the Old Testament where it seems like God is surprised at the wickedness of man. But again and again and again, The testimony of Scripture is that God is sovereign, that He is the one causing these things to happen at the first. In prophetic Scriptures as well, the sea, pictures of the sea, especially a violent sea, usually speak to us of chaos, chaos and disorder. So we could say that these four beasts, whatever they represent, they're arising out of a place of chaos, earthly chaos chaos. Secondly, what we can say about the great sea, it's a title that's often used in the Old Testament for the Mediterranean Sea and the region around it. So whatever these beasts represent, they must be in some way related to the Mediterranean Sea and the region around it. So these four beasts can't represent something that's not sort of lined up with the Mediterranean. It it has to have something to do with the great sea. So now let's look at the four beasts that come up. The four beasts come up out of the sea one by one, and each is different from the other. This prophetic imagery of beasts arising out of the sea, you might realize, is mirrored in another book in the Bible. Anybody hazard a guess? The book of Revelation, yes. Chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, and we'll come back to that later. Now the first beast 
it says, was like a lion, but had eagle's wings. Then it has its wings plucked off, it's made to stand on two legs like a man, and it's given the mind of man. The second beast is like a bear. It wasn't a bear, but it was like a bear, and it was raised up on one side. And we hear that there are three ribs between its teeth, and it's told, arise, devour much flesh. The third beast is like a leopard, and it's got four wings like a bird on its back and four heads, and dominion is given to it. I want you to hear that again. Dominion is given to it. It doesn't take it, it's given it. Fourthly, we have a fourth beast, and this is the one that Daniel focuses on. He's very interested in this beast, and he's very scared about this beast. We're told it's terrifying, it's dreadful, exceedingly strong, and has great iron teeth and bronze claws. We're told it devours, it broke in pieces, stamping what was left with its feet. We're also told that this beast has ten horns, and that as Daniel watches, another horn, a little horn, came up among them. Three of the existing horns were plucked out, and this little horn had eyes like a man, and it became greater than the other horns and began speaking great things, is what Daniel said. So, what are these four beasts? Who are they? What do they represent for us? Most throughout church history, and I'm going to teach you what most have taught, because I feel this is the theory with the most weight to it, most have held that these four beasts in Daniel's dream represent the same kingdoms in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. So the first beast would represent Babylon. The second beast, the one like the bear, represents Medo-Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire. Thirdly, the leopard with the four wings would represent Greece, the Grecian Empire. And then fourthly, the fourth beast, most would teach, represents Rome, the Roman Empire. Let me go a bit further to try and prove this to you. The first beast, the lion with the eagle's wings. Most believe this is Babylon. Now, what's interesting is that the ancient site of Babylon has been excavated more and more in recent years. I don't know if you realize, but Saddam Hussein actually built his palace right next to the ancient site of Babylon and saw himself as a successor to Nebuchadnezzar II, the one that we read about in the book of Daniel. What they found as they excavated the ruins of Babylon, interestingly, is on walls all around the city, there are images of lions with eagles' wings all over the city. So it seems that even those in Babylon knew that this animal, the, the lion, the king of the jungle, and the eagle, the king of the air, was a symbol of the Neo-Babylonian empire. The picture is one of regal power, of greatness, isn't it? And um, we see that the wings are plucked off, and then it's made to stand on two feet like a man. And this, I think, shows something of the glory that was lost since the death of Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't long after Nebuchadnezzar died that the Neo-Babylon Empire was taken by the Medo-Persians. The second beast, which most believe represents the Medo-Persian Empire. Think about what a bear is. A bear isn't as regal as a lion. It's not known as the king of the jungle or the king of the woods, but it's ferocious. It is ferocious. Bears have ridiculous strength. It's a lumbering animal, isn't it? It's savage and strong. 
And this lines up nicely, to be honest, with the Medo-Persian Empire from history. The, the Medo-Persian Empire immediately follows the Neo-Babylonian Empire. They, they conquered Babylon in 539 BC. And it's a story well known to history. The armies of the king of Persia, they were well known for their vastness. In fact, some historians number their troops sometimes into the millions. They would say that the armies of the king of Persia, of Xerxes I, would cover the land like a plague of locusts. Now, I don't recommend everybody watch this film, but if you've seen the movie 300, there is a depiction of the fleet of the Persian army. And although it's greatly exaggerated and rather strange, it does go some way to explain the myths and fables of history about the Persians, that they had this vast and brutal army. The three ribs in its mouth, most believe, actually a prophetic symbology for the three great triumphs of the Persian army of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, of the Lydian Empire, and then of the Egyptian Empire to the south. The third beast, the leopard, most believe represents Greece. Now in the year 331 BB, uh, BBC, the <laughs> 331 BC, some 200 years later, um, a Greek man, who you'll all know, arose out of Macedonia, and he rose to greatness. And he's known better to us by the name of Alexander the Great. How many of you have heard of Alexander the Great? Um, he conquered much of the known world by the age of 28. By the age of 28, he had conquered vast swathes of the world. His empire covered all of the lands previously conquered by the Persians. He was educated by none other than Aristotle, the philosopher, who himself was educated by Plato, who himself was educated by Socrates. So we're talking about a phenomenal character from history. By the time he died at the age of 32, his empire stretched all the way from India in the east, all the way to Greece in the west, and as far north up into Anatolia in northern Turkey, and as far south into Egypt and northern Africa. It's a huge expanse of empire. Now, I think it's interesting because this, this beast is represented by the leopard, and some believe you might even make a case for it being a cheetah. And that would make sense. It was all about speed, the, the, the speed at which this empire grew and took over the Medo-Persian Empire. The four heads, most believe, represent four governments, which represent the four governments which ruled after Alexander died. The empire was so big that it had to be broken down into four parts to make it work. Now, I want you to catch that, because in prophetic imagery, we have to understand that there's a difference between heads and horns and beasts. And what we don't want to do is get them mixed up. We, we can't have a head meaning something in this chapter and then something else in another chapter, or meaning one thing in Revelation and another thing in Daniel. So we, we have to understand the difference between heads Horns, it's crazy, isn't it? Um, heads, horns, beasts, okay? So we've got to try and understand that and not switch them around, otherwise we will get confused, okay? So heads generally speak of administrations, governments within an empire, okay? So the horned beast, let's talk about the fourth beast. Most believe this represents Rome. Why? Because Rome came immediately after the Grecian Empire and Rome swallowed up 
the Grecian Empire by and large and operated around the Mediterranean Sea. In 31 AD uh, was the year when Caesar Augustus finally defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra and took Egypt and finally conquered the lands previously belonging to the Grecian Empire. Now this guy, Caesar Augustus, is arguably one of the greatest leaders known from all history. Uh, a great commander, both militarily and politically. This guy uh, went a long way to forging some of the way that the Roman Empire would run for five, nearly 500 years. Now, um, each of these kingdoms, as I say, ruled over the Mediterranean Sea, and each kingdom came seamlessly one after the other. As I mentioned before, the reason why I think they have to be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, is that they can't be empires that arose with huge gaps of time in between. They can't be empires like the Incans or the Mongolians because they have to rule in the Mediterranean region. Just like Daniel said, that the Great Sea was very important to this vision. Now, let's move on because we don't want to run out of time and I've got a lot to share. The Little Horn. Why do I talk about the little horn? Why must we fixate on this? Well, I think we have to start here because it's mentioned first in the dream. Before we come to the Son of Man, we hear about this little horn. And then when Daniel has seen into heaven, he actually asks a question of somebody that stood there with him. And the question is about the fourth beast. What's this fourth beast and what do these horns represent? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at this little horn. As I've said, horns represent kings in prophetic visions. Horns represent kings. And this fourth beast rises up and has ten horns initially. But as Daniel's watching, a, an eleventh horn, a little horn, comes up and displaces three others. So what does that mean? What's being said here? It's being said, I believe, that in this Roman Empire, which is the beast, the fourth beast, there will be, at some stage in history, ten kings. Ten kings who rule at the same time as one another. And their empire is going to cover the whole earth. It's going to devour the whole earth, as Daniel sees in his, his vision. And then at some point, while these ten kings are ruling, a new king will arise, or a new leader, a new world leader will arise, who at first seems kind of insignificant, not very powerful, not somebody who you would remark upon as being a particularly amazing character or leader. But this insignificant little horn, this leader, will depose three of the existing kings and will go on to become greater than the remaining seven. This king, the little horn, has eyes like a man. What does that speak of? Well, in prophetic revelation, eyes like a man denotes intelligence. This insignificant little horn, this king who nobody thinks anything of, will have incredible intellect, will be a man of intellect. Secondly, he has a mouth speaking great things. This means that this little horn as well as being very intelligent, a man of understanding, will be a great orator, will be a great speaker, somebody who can capture the minds and hearts of all of his listeners. His speech will be impressive. His intellect will be fearsome. And he will begin to dominate the rest of the leaders in this 
world government. He will speak against God, it says, and make war against his holy ones, against the church, and actually will prevail over them for a time, wearing them out. Verse 25 tells us this. He'll speak words against the Most High. She'll wear out the saints of the Most High. She'll think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. What, What does that mean? Well, in Daniel's prophetic language, that essentially means three and a half years. A time is a year, times is two years, and a time and a half is half a year. So, three and a half years. This will come to an end, we're told, in verse 22, when the Ancient of Days comes in judgment. So, after all of that, explaining all of those bits, what does it mean? And how can we understand this? Because surely, if the fourth beast of of Daniel 7 is the Roman Empire... Well, the Roman Empire fell in the 5th century, didn't it? So how can these things possibly be speaking about something that's future? It's true that the Roman Empire fell in the 5th century. But it's also true that there was never a point at which 10 kings ruled at the same time in the old Roman Empire. We're also told that this little horn and that the beast that it appears on will only be destroyed when the Ancient of Days comes in judgment, which we know hasn't happened yet. So we can see in a strange way that there must be some kind of a future aspect to the Roman Empire, which seems very strange. But that seems to be what's being said. There's some sort of revived future Roman Empire, some kind of a global government ruled over by ten leaders, And this will happen immediately prior to the return of Christ. Now, I want to just prove that I haven't gone insane by quoting one of the church fathers to support my cause. Um, This is Irenaeus of Leons, who was a student of Polycarp, who was a church father. Polycarp himself was a student of the Apostle John. And Irenaeus of Leon, who was ministering in the second century, so not too far away from the early church, he says this, In still a clearer light, John, in the apocalypse, indicated to the Lord's disciples what shall happen in the last times, and concerning the ten kings who shall then arise, among whom the empire which now rules shall be partitioned. Who was the empire that ruled at the time of Irenaeus? Rome. It was the Roman Empire. He teaches us that what the ten horns shall be, which was seen by Daniel, telling us that it had been said to him, the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings who have received no, received no kingdom as yet, but shall receive power as if kings one hour with the beast. These will have one mind and give their strength and power to the beast and they shall make war with the lamb. The lamb shall overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. It is manifest, therefore, that these potentates who he has come to slay uh, and subject the remainder to his power and that he shall be himself the eighth among them. That's the little horn. And they shall lay Babylon waste, burn her with fire and shall give their kingdom to the beast and put the church to flight. After that, it shall be destroyed by the coming of our Lord. So that's, that's Irenaeus. So let's, let's continue for a moment and consider more about this little horn. Um, as I've said, I think what this is speaking about is a future aspect of the Roman Empire. 
Now, the Apostle John, who Irenaeus just mentioned, he had a vision, didn't he? Which we call the book of Revelation. He receives this vision on the Isle of Patmos sometime near the end of the first century. Some 60 years after the resurrection of Christ, many believe he was the, the last remaining apostle alive at this stage. And he records what he saw in the 13th chapter of Revelation. And it really closely parallels. If you read Revelation 13 from verse 1 to 10, along with Daniel 7, you see a lot of parallels. I'll quickly read it. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. You see the ten horns again there. But now we have seven heads. It has ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Remember that. It's opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and making his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of, whom, of the Lamb who was slain. Um, I would contend that the beast of Revelation 13 and the beast of Daniel 7 represent the exact same thing. They're the same thing. Both arise out of the sea. Both have ten horns. Both the little horn and the beast of Revelation 13 utter great and blasphemous things against God. Both are allowed, given the authority, to make war against the saints and overcome them. I want you to catch that. Even the beast, even the Antichrist has to receive God's authority, has to receive permission from God to attack the saints. Isn't that an incredible doctrine? That the devil has to ask for authority or permission to do anything. This is incredible. Both are allowed to make war on the saints and overcome them or wear them out as Daniel has it. Each beast has dominion over the whole earth in Daniel for a time, times and, a, and time and a half and in Revelation for 42 months. How much time is 42 months? It's three and a half years. So they, they rule and have this dominion for the same period of time. We're told by both passages that this will end when Christ returns in judgment, when the beast is thrown into the fire. There's a wonderful passage in Revelation 19. Just imagine this for a moment. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse's. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great and small. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Wow. We're reading, saints, about the last days. We're reading about the end of history in this world. Isn't that amazing that you get to look into those times? So if the little horn is one and the same as the beast of Revelation 13, then who is the beast of Revelation 13? Who is the little horn? I would contend that he is the Antichrist. He is the man of sin, as the Apostle Paul calls him in Thessalonians. The man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. So what can we know about this Antichrist from Daniel 7 to finish up? Firstly, we can know this, that he is a person. He is a person. He's not a system. He's not a religion or a particular kind of seat or position such as the Pope. Although we know from 1 John that there is such a thing as an Antichrist spirit, which is anybody who denies the Father and the Son. That's not what's being spoken of here in Daniel 7 or Revelation 13. We're talking about an individual. Secondly, we can know that this individual named the Antichrist will arise under a one-world government, which will be ruled by ten leaders at some point in the future. It hasn't happened yet. We know that at first this individual will be unremarkable. Nobody will think immediately, that's the Antichrist. You won't be able to spot him straight off because he'll be unremarkable. But he'll rise rapidly to prominence. He will have a great intellect and he will put down three leaders within this, ten, sorry, within this one world government. As I say, he'll be a very great speaker, a great orator, very impressive in his leadership. He will at some point begin to openly blaspheme God, though not at first, and he will then persecute God's people. This will go on for three and a half years, and then Christ will return to judge the living and the dead and will cast the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet into the lake of fire. So what can we deduce? I want you to learn this today. You're learning doctrine. You're learning theology. You're learning Christian teaching. You're learning about the end times. What can we deduce? Well, firstly, we can deduce this, that anyone claiming that a current or recent world leader is the Antichrist is mistaken. They are wrong. How do we know this? Because there is not a world government with 10 leaders right now. Does that make sense? So no, Barack Obama is not the Antichrist. No, Donald Trump is not the Antichrist. Uh, no, Boris Johnson, no matter how much he parties in Downing Street, he's not the Antichrist, okay? Secondly, we can know that because the Antichrist is an individual and not a thing or an institution, we can know that Islam is not the Antichrist. 
There are some who preach that Islam is the Antichrist, though it is certainly an Antichrist teaching because, as John says, it denies the Father and the Son. It itself is not the Antichrist. Neither is any other ism, okay? And neither, as many have contended, is it the Pope. The Pope is not the Antichrist, um, and certainly not the seat of the Pope is not the Antichrist, okay? I hope that makes sense. We know that this Antichrist rises within a one-world government with ten leaders. He will displace three of those leaders. So these are important details. Um, I would also say to you uh, that it's important that to, for us to understand that in that day, in the last days, there will be difficulties, there will be suffering, there will be tribulation before Jesus returns to bring glory and justice for all of those, did you read that? For all whose names are written in the book of life from beginning, from before the foundation of the world. Wow. Hallelujah. So what do we know and why do we need to know this, Pastor Graham, before you finish? We need to know, brothers and sisters, that the times are in God's hands. Our times, this time we live in, 2022, the coronavirus pandemic, this government this nation, all of it is in the hands of God Almighty. Hallelujah. And that ultimately, every government on earth, even the most dreadful, despicable governments, even the Antichrist government, must receive permission from God to rule and will give account to God on that day. No government is going to get away scot-free, which is wonderful news. There will be justice for every injustice that takes place. Hallelujah. God gives dominion and God takes away dominion. Our God, the Christian God, is a sovereign God who rules over creation. Moreover, we need to know that God has left us, His people, with vital information about the future. He's left us with prophecies. Why does He do that? Well, He does it for our own good. He does it so that we will prepare ourselves and warn others about what's coming. Because what we've just read is very sobering. And next time I'll talk to you about the Son of Man. And I'll talk to you about that figure who sits on the throne of fire. Many Christians take such a lackadaisical view of the end times, it scares me. Your God is coming back to judge the world. And He's coming to judge not based on upon our standards of morality, but on His own. He is a holy God. That should make us nervous if we don't know Jesus. How many of you, when you read these things, are sobered? How many of you understand, I need to tell my friends about Jesus. I need to let my family know about Christ and about the option that God has made available to them through Jesus Christ. It should motivate us reading about these end times. It should motivate us to share the gospel. Finally, I think it tells us that suffering and trials are part of the Christian life. That suffering, persecution, is normal for a Christian. I think we've forgotten it because we live in the West. We're so blessed to be able to meet in a building like this without fear of anybody breaking in or me being carted off or anything like that. We are very, very blessed and we're blissfully unaware of our own history. But in many countries today, if you go and visit the Open Doors website, you'll find that meeting as a Christian in so many nations is a dangerous thing to do. 
Persecution and suffering and trials are part of our portion as believers, and it doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. It actually means he's going to glorify himself through your sufferings. And that all of those who suffer on account of Christ will receive a reward. Hallelujah. What an amazing promise. All of these things will ultimately work towards the glory of God. So I'm sorry it's been a challenging message today. I'm sorry it's been a lot to try and conceive of. But it's important for you to understand Things about the last days of history. Why? Not because Pastor Graham says so, because God says so. I'd like to invite Mike and, uh, Mark and Becky to come back up and we're going to pray. Would you like to stand if you're able? God, as we consider these things today from the book of Daniel, we want to take a moment just to soberly take an account of our souls and ask the question, do we know Jesus? Because we know that there will be a day in the future when the Lord of glory, the King of kings, returns on a white horse to judge this world. And on that day, the only ones who shall be counted worthy to come and be in the kingdom with him will be those whose names are written in a book. And it's his book. So Lord, we pray right now that you would help us to search our hearts and ask the question whether we know you, whether we love you, whether we have given our lives over to you whether we've repented of our sins, whether we're walking daily in grace and forgiveness. Lord, I ask you today that you might give us more motivation to share the good news with other people, knowing that this day approaches, that it's not far off. Lord, that we might see many hundreds of people won into the kingdom of God before these events take place. Prepare us and give us a heart to know you in these days. I pray right now even that Holy Spirit you might give more of us encouragement and boldness to share the good news of the gospel. And Lord we might know at the same time that if we're fearful of what's happening in the world, if we're feeling rocked and shaken by world events in the last two years we we take comfort in knowing the great message of the book of Daniel that you are in control and that you do have a plan and that you're working it all together for your own glory and for our good as your children we we thank you for that wonderful truth in Jesus's mighty name amen amen let's sing together before we close